Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's time for our weekly journey that we call Living Hope, designed to provide hope, inspiration, and education for those living with pancreatic cancer and those all around them, sharing the real-life stories of those really affected by this deadly disease and how with it on a daily basis. And today, we're going to focus on the hope part of it here. I hear that uh, survival rates are up a little bit here, so uh, that's always good news. What do you think, Roberta Luna? (laughs) Excellent news when we can raise it up a little bit. We need to raise it up a lot, but we'll take what we can and just keep pushing until we get more. So... And um, June is National Cancer Survivor Month for all all cancers. And today we have our guest is Tori Lorick. Tori is the manager to, I believe, patient services with the Pancreatic Network and has been with PanCan for approximately five years or more now. Tori was drawn to the organization due to the loss of her father to pancreatic cancer. Thank you, Tori, for joining us again. It's always wonderful to have you on and, and talking about the wonderful subjects and changes that are happening. Did we do something wrong, though? She's on Zoom this time. She, maybe we, I don't know, did, I, did we offend her somehow? We did not give her free water when she came in or something? Here? No, it's just it's the end of the physical year for them, so they have uh, a lot of oh, things, a lot of Zooming she has to do today and <laughs> instead of coming off. I apologize. All. I love being there in person, so next time. I'll All right. Make sure to be there. Yes, we'll ha- we'll have her back. It's lovely to see you. Even on Zoom is fine, and we'll give Paul a hard time later on. But uh, <laughs> before you know, I, I a lot of times, and this is was true for me when some when I first heard about pancreatic cancer, I had no clue what it was. I'd never, you know, never heard of it. Never heard of the pancreas. Didn't even know what it did. So before we get too far in, because it is a big question, somebody they people always ask me is what is the pancreas and what does it do? Can you just give us a little brief summary about that? Sure, absolutely. So our pancreas has lots to do with digestion and it's located deep um, in the stomach, in the abdomen. Um, And it is an organ that has two main functions. One is to produce pancreatic enzymes, which helps us to break down and absorb nutrients from food. And the other is to regulate our hormones, such as insulin, which also have to do with regulating blood sugar. So very much um, an organ focused around uh, digestion, which is why many of the symptoms of pancreatic cancer presents um, in in um, ways that affect digestion. So abdominal bloating or maybe other challenges with appetite or acid reflux, things of that nature. So I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Did you also talk about the, you did mention insulin. Did I hear? Yes, I'll yes, take it. Exactly. yes. It produces, <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Insulin and, and pre- yes, produces hormones that regulate blood sugar, such as insulin. Mm-hmm. I think I'm having a Monday today, even though it's Thursday. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like we, we, we did say, you know, for the longest time, the survival rate for pancreatic cancer has pretty much stayed in the single digits. It's only recently, you know, gone into a double digits where now we are at 11%, which is wonderful that it has, but it's still, you know, unacceptable for us. I mean, we need to do something to really get it boosted up there like so many other cancers have seen. What do you contribute to the recent boost in the survival rate for pancreatic cancer? Sure. So just like you mentioned, over the last decade, it's gone from 6 to 11%. Um, and from last year, it's risen 1% from 10 to 11. Um, and the American Cancer Society releases these facts and figures for that five-year survival rate every January. So um, there are a couple of things that we can um, attribute this, this rise to. So one of those being early detection so improvements in early detection which is a main focus so making sure that 
We can find methods and strategies to catch the, the cancer at an earlier stage um, where there may be more successful treatment, such as surgery, which is the best way to manage pancreatic cancer long-term. Um, and the other is improvement in treatments and the way that patients are able to receive treatments, um, improvements in treatment overall, and I'm happy to dive into that a little bit further, but those are going to be two of the main things that have really attributed to that rise over the last 10 years. Yeah, I think early detection is really important, and it's one of the reasons I feel like I'm still here is because it was detected so early, um, unfortunately having to lose family members to get to that point. But, you know, we, we need to do whatever we can to get that early detection because a lot of people that I do speak with were, you know, detected early. So yes. um, it gives us more of a fighting chance. So, And I know pancreatic cancer, for one, it's hard to diagnose. Mm -hmm. Is one of those reasons possibly because of the location of the pancreas? Absolutely. So because of, there are a few different reasons why it's hard to diagnose. So one is because of the location of the pancreas located deep in the abdomen. So it's difficult to um, obtain imaging. At this time, there's not one standard screening tool like we see for other types of cancers. So it's usually a combination of imaging that's needed in order to visualize what's going on and get to the root of what a patient may be experiencing or diagnosing the disease. So location is one of them. Um, also, the symptoms mimic or can be very vague and mimic other issues. So it could present as other digestive challenges or pain. So um, that's why it's really important to advocate and speak with your doctor um, and advocate for additional testing because it can mimic these other issues. Um, and the goal is really to catch the disease at an earlier stage, like I mentioned, so that there can be more successful treatment or opportunity for successful treatment. Um, when a patient is experiencing these very vague symptoms um, and the, there isn't proper testing to really determine what's going on, that means that the cancer has some time to spread and it's often diagnosed at a later stage. The majority of patients are, are diagnosed at a later stage. Right. I understand that was with my dad and with my uncle um, because there are issues as far as I understand where digestive is and mine were the same. My mom, it was totally different. Hers was a constant itching. Interesting. Uh, yeah, her, Does she have jaundice as well? Not till later on, but in the early days, it was um, it was this extreme itching, and she had the neuroendocrine, so um, you know it was a little different. But I thought that was a little odd, and we just didn't even think to look at, of course, of pancreatic cancer due to that. It was just on yeah. a on a general um, physical that her doctor suspected it. So, you know, it's, yeah, I think she absolutely. had, she had a lot of um, pancreatitis, I think was, uh, I think yeah. something too. So I hear right. that's, that's common as well. Is that like maybe a, a pre-risk mm -hmm. factor for pancreatic cancer? Yes. So pancreatitis is a risk factor for pancreatic cancer. So what pancreatitis is, is an inflammation of the pancreas. So that can heighten the risk of potential development of the disease, um, which is why we really educate about risk factors, speaking with the gastroenterologist who's a pancreatic specialist to notify them of any challenges that one is experiencing, any symptoms, any previous history, or if you do have a variety of risk factors, definitely speaking with the doctor and communicating that so that you can receive regular monitoring and um, make sure that you do have a specialist that is um, really focused on issues of the digestive system and pancreas. No, it's with somebody that maybe has symptoms, but somebody that has like family members that were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, when should they start thinking yes. about that and looking at that? Mm -hmm. So um, it, the guidelines have actually within the last couple of years changed. So 
For those that have one first degree relative, so that is mother, father, brother, sister, if you have one family member who has had the disease, you may potentially have a heightened risk. So it's really important to know about family history and to kind of keep that on your radar just so that you can be proactive. Um, and in those cases, it's recommended to speak with a genetic counselor. Um, and that is a healthcare professional that can really do a pedigree or map of your family to determine any other illnesses or diseases within the family, and then make recommendations according based on that for the future and what may be the most beneficial for, for you and your family. Um, and then genetic testing may be uh, suggested. So that's actually testing of blood or saliva to determine if there's a hereditary mutation. So a mutation passed down from mother or father that may heighten the risk of developing the disease. So that family history is a risk factor and just really important to start those conversations with your healthcare team to learn about your options. If it is determined that there is a hereditary component, it's only about 10% of people that have a mutation passed down from mother or father that may heighten risk. But if it is determined that you do have that heightened risk, there are screening programs that can assist with early detection where top researchers and doctors are doing annual monitoring, um, continuous tests, and you're actually part of a screening program itself. Or if that's not possible, you can do regular imaging tests with your gastroenterologist, and that's usually recommended after the age of 50. So um, there are options if there is a family history to really focus on this potential early detection of the disease. Yeah, mine was caught. I was diagnosed when I was 45. So I've been told, and it, it's funny, I've been told different things that my, I have two sons, that they should be probably be checked at different ages, like I think 10 yeah. years from when I was diagnosed, so around in their, their 30s. Is that their 30s? Yeah. Yeah. And that brings up a really good point and why it's so important to talk about each individual's family history. So, you know, where families where there may be more uh, loved ones that have had the disease, there would be an even increased risk. So the screening may be different from someone that maybe doesn't have a hereditary mutation um, or has um, a different number of maybe um, a second degree relative that has the disease. So that's why it's very important to make sure that you're speaking with a genetic counselor and with a doctor that can make recommendations for when someone should be screened for the disease. And is that something you would start your conversation with your your uh, private, your primary care doctor or is there yeah. another road you should go down? Yeah, you could definitely start a discussion with your primary care doctor to potentially get a referral to a genetic counselor and to speak with them about the fact that you're interested in discussing family history and the genetics of the disease as it pertains to your particular situation. Um, you know, depending on an insurance policies and things like that, you could also mm -hmm. go directly to a genetic counselor. Um, I can, I, I do know that the um, National Society of Genetic Counselors provides referrals to genetic counselors in your area. And then also PanCan Patient Services can give you a listing of genetic counselors in your area that specialize in pancreatic cancer as well. So um, you can either speak, I would always recommend anything that you're considering speaking with your doctor, your primary doctor about just to, to get their insight and their recommendations and potential referrals. But you can also go directly to a genetic counselor if you'd like to speak with a specialist that has the expertise of the genetics of the disease as well. And now if it's something that's not covered by your insurance, do you know how expensive it is if somebody wanted to go and pay out of their own pocket to do that? Yeah, I believe it starts, of course it's, it 
it really just varies mm -hmm. on, on the, the individual in the service. I believe it starts around 250 and up from there for a potential consultation. But it is def every policy is different. But um, one thing I can share is that the genetic counselor kind of works as a liaison or a go between with your health insurance. Um, if there is any additional testing or um, if it is suggested that there's screening that is recommended, they can kind of work as the liaison to make a case for why insurance should cover these procedures moving forward. So that's another potential benefit of working with a genetic counselor because they can kind of be a liaison or advocate for potential insurance coverage. Um, but it can be 250 upwards of that um, for, for like a self-pay basis for a genetic counselor. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted a general idea because I know a lot of people say there, they think, you know, it's extremely important. I'm sorry, extremely expensive to get started. And I'm just curious if you had an idea, at least what a beginning price could look like. So thank you. Um, with the increase that we've had, like I said, it's been kind of slow in the process, mm -hmm. but we're thankful for it. But we need to you know, push it a little bit faster. Why has it taken so long for pancreatic cancer to improve when other cancers I mean, their survival rate has just really moved up continuously throughout the years. Why is it so why is it so different with pancreatic cancer? Going back to the location of the pancreas, so the location of the pancreas, the environment within the body, the cancer specifically has something called a stroma, which is a, a barrier around the cancer, if you will, um, a fibrous barrier around the cancer. And one of the challenges of really being able to target the disease is that it has this really intense, tough stroma. And again, that's the environment, how the cells develop within the body that make it challenging um, to, to actually penetrate the tumor. Um, the fact that we don't have as developed as an, uh, one standard diagnostic tool, that's another part of this and why there hasn't been as much development because there are patients diagnosed later stage. Um, that being said, there have been improvements over the years and there have been things that have really improved the survival statistic and improved the lives of many patients. Um, one of those being um, biomarker testing specifically. And this also has to do with just the nature of the challenges with targeting this tumor. So biomarker testing is um, something that it's a particular type of testing where they're actually taking a sample of a patient's tumor tissue and determining if it has any specific genetic mutations or alterations in the proteins, which are referred to as biomarkers. And if a patient has a targetable or actionable biomarker, that means that there may be targeted therapies to target those unique aspects of the cancer cells. Um, and one of the things you mentioned, just kind of how this has gradually been a really kind of slow and gradual increase is that it requires clinical trials and patients to participate in clinical trials to determine the effectiveness of these targeted treatments. But we have seen the research has shown that patients that have an actionable mutation where there is a drug that can target that mutation may have improved and increased survival. Um, so that is something that has also attributed to, to the survival rate increase is the development of these um, types of testing, the, barget, the biomarker targeted testing and then these targeted therapies as well to target these um, specific aspects of cancer cells. I know my doctor, when he was describing the pancreatic tumor to me, he was said it was like the hard-shelled peanut M&M 
Um, yes. Just to kind of give people Very an idea, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to give an idea yeah. how difficult it is to penetrate it. So mm-hmm. um, that was uh, just a little thing that, you know, he was trying to explain to me. Because it's hard to think, you know, why is it, you know, the other cancers that you seem to can, can target and get the chemo through it to yeah. kill the cells or whatever. So what's the difference? And apparently it builds up its own little protective shell and protects itself, mm-hmm. which is, I think, kind of unique in a way, but something we, you know, need to really tailor and see if we can't get around and do that. Okay. Yeah, definitely. A lot of times, a lot of doctors will do radiation first to break through, and some will don't think radiation is the answer. They'll go straight to, to chemo. Is there any any insight on that as to why that could be, why they might feel that way? So um, it's because, so I guess I should kind of backtrack a little bit. So when the cancer is localized to the pancreas, so that means it hasn't spread to uh, other organs, chemotherapy or radiation therapy may be recommended. So radiation therapy is typically only recommended when it's confined to the pancreas or localized. And that's specifically for adenocarcinoma. For neuroendocrine, which is the more rare type of pancreatic cancer, um, there isn't that one exact standard of care. So there's a little bit more flexibility in what may be recommended. But for adenocarcinoma, there's some kind of conflicting research and just opinions within the medical community of which to start with first. And that's really contingent and dependent on the patient's situation, overall health, um, you know, how a doctor thinks that a patient may tolerate therapy. And if you ever, if you are a patient that is determining what the best option is to start, that's why considering a second opinion with a pancreatic cancer specialist is always very important. So say a doctor recommends radiation before chemotherapy um, and you want to really get more insight if that's you know the, the best route for you. So getting that additional opinion can either confirm what that first doctor has shared with you um, or introduce another option as well. Um, if maybe they're suggesting starting with chemotherapy or going another route prior to starting radiation. So um, it's, it's not as clear cut and the mm-hmm. standard of care is not as clear cut when the cancer is localized to the pancreas. It's also contingent on if surgery may potentially be an option. Uh, but radiation can be an option for for patients where doctors feel it's appropriate. Oh, thank you. And I do want to put you on the spot and just something that, you know, I hear and was just curious about. Yeah. Um, with the with the increase in uh, the survival rate for pancreatic cancer, you know, we've gone from I think when my dad was diagnosed, it was three percent, and I was diagnosed in two thousand two, and it was four uh, percent at that time. So gradually seeing it kind of hop by one percent for a, a while, and now from ten, finally double digits now into yeah. eleven. What do what are some of the reasons that you think there, that we are seeing this increase? Yes. So some of the reasons, so kind of going back to the early detection and improvement in treatments. So there is lots of research around that early detection. There are those screening programs, like I mentioned, there's um, the NCCN National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines have changed to recommend genetic testing for those that have uh, one first degree relative with the disease. So learning about that hereditary component has led to um, more early detection of the disease because people are getting educated about their potential risk. Through our organization, you know, we have various initiatives that also support the research around early detection, one being our early detection initiative. Um, so there was a, the, it was determined through research, there's a small subset of patients that developed after the age of 50, developed diabetes, and that was because of the pancreatic tumor. Um, So this is a study whether imaging at the time of this new onset diabetes 
may be helpful to detect the cancer early. So that's one of our studies and initiatives that, that we are, are funding and um, really excited about to, to learn if this imaging may be helpful for that detection. The regular and routine um, monitoring, educating patients about talking to their healthcare team, working with a gastroenterologist when they experience any symptoms. The awareness with this disease is really a, a key part of this too. Um, you know, unfortunately, I had the same experience with my dad where it was, you know, six months before it was diagnosed and he was struggling with symptoms because it was diagnosed as many other things before the testing was actually ordered to get to the root of things. And that was 2004. So with the spreading of awareness, listening to your body, knowing the signs, knowing the risk factors, um, people are getting diagnosed earlier because they're knowing how to speak to their doctor about this and how to advocate for additional testing. So those are just some of the components in regards to early detection. Um, and then improvement in treatments, like I mentioned, the clinical trial setting is where we learn about drugs that may potentially move the needle for this disease. So there have been um, drugs that have been approved. There's been the development of many targeted therapies that um, are specifically designed for patients that have those biomarkers within their cancer. Um, the awareness and, and widespread knowledge and implementation of the important, importance of both biomarker and genetic testing, both components of testing tumor tissue for biomarkers, as well as the blood and saliva of patients that have been diagnosed for hereditary biomarkers. The NCCN guidelines, like I mentioned, it suggests both of those so that those can indicate treatment options and it's around 30% of patients have an actionable biomarker. So for those patients, their outcomes may be improved because of the development of these uh, treatments and drugs. Um, and just the clinical trial space in general is, is really important. Um, patients that participate in clinical trials do potentially have better outcomes. So that's how we're learning and that's how, um, you know, the, the needle has really been moved with these treatments. Another part of this too is the improvement in supportive care. So supportive care has to do, it's also referred to as palliative care. Mm -hmm. So that is the addressing of the symptoms and side effects of the disease, the emotional component of the disease. So really looking at patients holistically and um, over the last 20 years, you know, since we're talking about the early 2000s when our, our family members were impacted, um, the importance of working with a palliative care specialist and a supportive care team. And if patient symptoms and side effects are better managed and mitigated, they're able to receive these chemotherapy treatments. They're able to participate in clinical trials. They're able to stay on treatment for longer that may be beneficial. So that supportive care component has improved and is a really is an important part of this conversation. Um, and then, you know, another um, just related to that, our patient registry through through um, PanCan is an online database designed to help accelerate research. And it's where patients and caregivers can actually go and self-report symptoms, side effects, how these things were managed, responses to treatment. Um, and these are things that researchers are taking a look at to learn more about patterns and trends in the disease and, and how we can support patients and what works and what maybe isn't as effective. So um, the again, two kind of buckets are early detection and improvement in treatments, but there's a lot that informs both of those and a lot of work done being done, you know, out in the fields, in the laboratory, advocacy organizations that are supporting this, everyone that's getting involved with this cause and spreading awareness, um, everyone is assisting to, to really move the needle and, and to increase that survival rate.
And people can find out about these by going to the website, right, pancan.org. The patient registry, I, actually, I find that very useful. I, I am part of that. I am on that end. Not only can I give my own symptoms and my own thing, I'm able to put my, my parents and my family in there, yeah. which I think is, you know, I hope is very helpful, even though they're not with us any longer, but something that they can take and maybe learn from. And what I can say, too, about the patient registry, I know a lot of people are concerned about privacy, but it is very well protected. And if you can speak a little bit about that just to yes. encourage people. Mm-hmm. Um, so HIPAA and patient privacy and confidentiality is at the forefront of everything that we do as an organization through patient services, through the patient registry, everything is de-identified um, as well. So even though you're inputting your information, it will always be protected and it will just be um, what's reported. You are not as a patient or caregiver tied to that information You know, with your individual identifying information. Um, and I think the point that you made about being able to share information about, you know, your family members that you've lost, it's, uh, you know, in, with some of my patient, uh, caregivers that I've worked with, it's a way to, in someone's honor, continue to further the research and, um, you know, use their journey and experience as a way to, to help others and give back and share about their experience and what they went through so that, um, you know, in their honor for those that we've lost, we can really use that information. Um, and of course, very personal decision to participate in something like the registry or any registry in general. There are registries, um, uh, you know, across the board, there's uh, genetics registries and things like that, but it's an opportunity for you to use as a caregiver or patient, use what you've been through as a way to help doctors and researchers learn more. Yeah, I think if they can help find, you know, a common denominator, I mean, there has to be something there, like with the, with the survivors, what is it, that one thing, there must be some yeah. common denominator there, yeah. that if we can just find, then we'll be able to have, you know, way more survivors. Definitely. Right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, um, sorry, I'm, I'm not sure how we are on time, but, you know, I can just share one of the, some of the research that was um, obtained from the patient registry was around uh, pancreatic enzyme insufficiency and the importance of the supplementation of pancreatic enzymes. So taking those enzymes to manage some of the digestive symptoms and that being a really important part of supportive care. And there was research that the organization published around that. Um, and that's information that's used in the clinic and, um, you know, in the trial setting as well to make sure that patients are utilizing pancreatic enzymes and talking to their doctor about pancreatic enzymes. So that's just one example of, of the information that people share um, and how that's used to really um, inform how patients are treated. And I have to say that part did help me because it was something when you're given the enzymes, nobody knows how, they don't tell you really how to take it. The doctor doesn't, so you have to rely on the pharmacist and it can be different. So, I mean, yeah. you want to know how many am I supposed to be taking? How am I supposed to be doing this? So that actually was very helpful to me personally. So, and that I did participate on that questionnaire on, on the patient registry. So I found that very helpful. So thank you. Um, I've heard, and I don't know if there's any, you can talk about it or not. If you can't, that's fine. But something about a blood test that might we might be close to, is that correct? Yeah. Or are we still way off? Yes. No, there are two blood tests one was developed by Immunovia and the other is uh, developed and it's called Grail. So these are blood tests that are taking a look to determine if there are any antigens or biomarkers within the blood that may be elevated that may indicate if there could be signs of pancreatic cancer in real time. So these are this very exciting research, definitely something that patient services provides information on, and we encourage having discussions with 
um, with your healthcare team if there is a family history of the disease or if there is a heightened risk of developing the disease. So these are, are very exciting um, and can potentially inform additional testing. If these numbers have spiked, if this blood test indicates that there could be something going on, it can inform potential early detection for patients that are eligible to receive these tests. So very exciting, this development. Um, and, and definitely on the right track in terms of having a, um, a simple test that's done through blood to determine if there is something present there. One thing that I just want to note with those, while still you know very exciting and important, talk to your doctor about them. We can give you information about these tests and having those discussions. Also important to consider that genetic testing component just to determine if there is a you know a potential heightened risk because learning if there's a hereditary component, that's something that's present all the time, right? That's a mutation that's been passed down. Um, and that can inform how a patient or or um, someone that's worried about risk of the disease is monitored. Those two blood tests, the Immunovia and Grail, those are in real time determining if there's a spike in the levels and if there should be something that is taken a look at a little bit further. So those are kind of the differences between the two types of testing, but definitely very exciting. And within the last year, those have been developed so um, or have come to, to market and are available. Um, and I recommend speaking with your doctor about them. There are some limitations with those tests. Um, just in terms of, of states and availability and things like that, but we're always happy to give you information through patient services or your doctor. Definitely speak with your doctor if you're interested. Good, thank you. And somebody just texted me wanting to know, they work with different cancer clinical trials, but they're wondering why is it so hard to get somebody to participate in a pancreatic cancer clinical trial? Yeah, so patients specifically, so for patients to yes. enroll. Yes. So, this is something, this is a barrier and something that as an organization, you know, we are, are really looking to change um, and taking a look from all different sides because the clinical trial enrollment rate is, is, is pretty low. So one of them being the criteria for trials. Patients do need to fit a specific criteria for trials in order to enroll. So that's something that we do see just challenges with being eligible. Um, education and awareness about clinical trials, that's a huge part of this. Making sure that we get the word out about how to actually get a listing of potential clinical trials that a patient may be eligible for. And for those that are working with a high volume institution for the disease that have, um, if they're working with top researchers, researchers and doctors, they have may have more knowledge and access and availability for these trials. But patients that are located in a community setting or maybe they're Oncologist is not as familiar with clinical trials. That's where we really need to get the word out um, and, and teach people and educate people about how to get these lists of clinical trials, take them to their doctor so that they can consider these options. Um, another would also just be, you know, it's a very personal decision to enroll in a trial. Um, and there's some stigma still, which I know we've talked about in the past about participating in a trial. And just some of their absolute benefits, but there are potential risks of also participating in a trial. So. Um, just the fear of the unknown. Um, and, you know, like we talked about before, there are three phases of testing in clinical trials and the drug only moves on to the next phase if it's proven to be safe and effective in the previous phase. Um, and there are many safety checks in place. You're working with top researchers and doctors to be monitored and potentially receive a treatment um, that, that um, is newer and maybe better than the standard of care treatment prior to it being readily available. So there are absolutely potential benefits to participating in a trial and something that we recommended and awareness is a huge part of that. Um, and some of the ways that patients can get educated about 
um, clinical trials in their area would be to reach out to patient services. We have the most comprehensive database for pancreatic cancer specific clinical trials. So we can run personalized searches based on treatment history, location of the cancer, type of the cancer. Um, and then there are many other tools online as well through other advocacy organizations and um, other opportunities online and search engines online. But we think it's really helpful to be able to have someone kind of guide you through that process. So to summarize, it would be eligibility, awareness, uh, stigma. These are some of the biggest challenges for, for getting patients to enroll. Yeah, and like you said, we have touched on these subjects. So if anybody wants to listen to them, they're on a podcast. They can just, I think, Google it, and it'll it should it should come up. Um, but I want to uh, thank you for coming back and talking with us. And I know there's plenty more I would love to talk about. So I know I want to have you come back again because I'd really like to dive into some of these things, like know your tumor precision promise yeah. a little more, um, because they can almost take up a whole show. So we'd really love to have mm-hmm. you come back. So thank you for joining us today and. Um, This episode of Living Hope is dedicated to the members of the Survivor Council and Survivor Council alumni formed by PANCAN to ensure that the priorities, experience, and expertise are integrated into PANCAN's programs and initiatives. I was very honored to be on the first Survivor Council that came out, and we um, are there to help the survivors and make them aware of some of the programs that are out there for PANCAN. So there are too many members to list here right now. We only have a few seconds left, but I will name them on on the podcast and in the when it comes out later so thank you for those people who have given us their time on the survivor council and the survivor council alumni thank you tori for being here again greatly appreciate it thank you yes you're so welcome thanks for having me roberta it's always a pleasure and love that we dedicated that to the survivor council it's so important thank you there you have it. We'll let it sink in for a moment here. There is hope on the horizon. Living Hope, a weekly journey designed to provide hope, inspiration, and education for those living with pancreatic cancer. Sharing the real life stories of those really affected by this deadly disease and how they deal with it on a daily basis. You'd like to share any of your stories, please. We're always looking for people to come forward and tell us what they've seen, what they've been through. Share it with others by contacting us here at OC Talk Radio, reaching out to Roberta through social media. And if you or anyone you know needs help, like right now, there's lots of places. We'll give you a couple, the Hirschberg Center up in UCLA and Patient Services at 8772-PANCAN. That's 8772-P-A-N-C-A-N for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. And for the OC Talk Radio Network, I'm Paul Roberts, thanking you for joining us, hoping us you'll be back again and share the story of living home.